Hello and welcome to the bizarre and fascinating. Oh, that sounded weird. <laughs> it sounded normal to me. I felt like I missed a word in there. Uh-uh. <laughs> okay then. Um, hello and welcome to the bizarre and fascinating details podcast. I'm your host Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me as usual. Hi, Darcy. Hello, hello. Things are looking good over on your side. Woo, woo. Yeah, things are turning up Darcy lately, but don't want to talk about it too much, too early, too soon. Yeah, but, um... right. Don't count the chickens yet, but it's spring is coming. Things are getting warmer here, and that's the exciting part on my end. I was going to say, it looks like there's still snow on the ground though outside. There is, is that... but yeah. it's supposed to be in the 50s next week, and Dude, it's already how... like 40s. So Ask me what the temperature was here today. What was the temperature? 80. You stop it. You shut your mouth right now. (laughs) I'm over it. I want it to be, if it's supposed to be winter, let it be winter. If it's supposed to be spring and summer, let it be spring and summer. Like, I'm over this. Like, that's the deal with the South is, like, it can't ever make up its mind from one week to the next. Literally, last week, it was, like, 19 degrees. Yeah. No. No. It's 80. I'm over it. I literally want to punch you in the face right now. (laughs) Well, there was just a news report that we're going to have an exceptionally large number of tornadoes this year oh great that's even better yeah in the south so not good um so on the house front something really cool happened this week yeah um we were looking through one of the back bathrooms and came across a medicine cabinet that had not been opened in 40 friggin years Wow, wait, we how was it? Pulled it open. It was like, was it like stuck hidden? shut. No, it was in the, the, the <gasps> hallway bathroom and it was like sh- stuck shut. And so I put a screwdriver in and we pulled around, messed around with it and Ooh, finally got it open. It it. And it had like old talcum powder and like stuff from 40 years ago. Shampoos. Oh like hairspray, it had a melon baller and a tea bag and like some dishes and like some what? friggin' bobby pins and silverware and oh my god, it was just the craziest thing. How random. Yeah. And I really liked looking at the old beauty products that were in there. Cause I think that it is it was the daughter's bathroom because it's got a bunch of like girly stuff in there, like shampoo oh, and like hairsprays. Yeah, and like this stuff called skinny dip perfumed talc which is like i guess was a big thing back then like talcum powder that kind of smelled like perfume and oh my gosh it what was do you just, use talcum powder for um i don't know they would sprinkle it on themselves and i don't know i've never used talcum powder huh i mean i know it's like you put it like in your shoes no like i guess shoes like bad, put right? it on your put it on your body i guess when you get oh. out of the shower i don't know i've never used talcum powder so it seems like you would want to put something that's not drying on your body when you get out of the shower. Like I don't. Lotion. I, that was maybe a thing back then, but evidently if it you... had asbestos in a lot of them, the earlier products. Ooh. And there's a lot of people that are having cancer now because they used the, sh- they used a lot of it in like their personal areas, like their armpits and their crotch oh. area. Um, and oh, so maybe it was like a deodorant type thing. There's a lot of because ca- it would have like absorb. Yeah. There's a couple of major class action lawsuits going on right now related Yikes. to that. So it's um, not something I was ever into, but it's interesting to look and see these neat old yeah. products in the cupboard. And there's no dates on any of them, but when I looked up the brands online, you could see when they were made. And it's just, it was really God, neat. That's wild. Just a really cool thing. I wonder why there's a melon baller in there, though. That's I don't weird. know. And that was one of the most <laughs> common questions that people asked. And I just was laughing my butt off every time I like, got a question about that because I posted on social media. People were like, is about that this melon baller? Is, there, is that a melon baller in your medicine cabinet? And I was like, yep, it sure is. Yep, sure is. Um, okay, so a couple of weird cases that I saw on the news that I thought you'd kind of be interested in. Um, here's one. Woman arrested after allegedly crashing car calmly fleeing scene in an uber in miami beach so this woman crashes her car into a food market in miami beach and then she calls an uber and takes, okay. o- takes off <laughs> so this all went down on tuesday of last week and this woman was later identified as sharon martinez lazaro of los angeles fled the scene as a pa- in a passenger excuse me as a passenger in a chrysler footage from the aftermath showed shocked witnesses including a videographer who was repeatedly calling out for her to stop because you know she crashed into a store and a witness saw some of the footage on their cell phones and she basically was like okay um she was more concerned about her designer bag her stupid backpack she put on said people who saw her leaving the scene 
but she tried to, I guess, hit somebody, but she was arrested after authorities tracked her down on the freeway, but she was charged with leaving the scene of an accident and with property damage. Per a separate report from TMZ, who also shared footage of the crash aftermath, the getaway car was an Uber. The alleged driver, identified as Bobby Stone, was arrested and now faces an accessory after the fact charge. Whoa. The alleged driver said to confess to being aware of the initial crash um, and still helped this woman leave the scene. Um, So evidently, the vehicle used in the crash was a four-door Dodge Charger with Florida tags. Prior to crashing into the food market, the car was driving on the sidewalk and damaged the shop at an estimated value of about $5,000. How old is the driver, the woman? Um, 27. Oh, Jesus. So, number one, do you think And she was, left. Yeah, left the, the scene. scene. So they can't... She's going to they jail. They can't... People well, yeah, film, but, people filmed but they can't her. charge her for um, a DUI or DWI because she left Mm-mm. the scene. And that's what the other question I was going to ask is, do you think there was alcohol or drugs involved, and that's why she left? It's entirely possible, but since because she did leave, they can't they can't charge her with it. Yeah, just kind of a bonkers case. Like, can you imagine? Like, somebody drives up next to you and crashes into a storefront and then takes off in an Uber. It's just like this is where we live. This is how we live now. That you and can... she was driving on the sidewalk before yes. this, so like she was already <laughs> erratically driving. Was it a rental car? Does she live in Miami now? Like, what's the... uh, it doesn't say. So. I think we'll probably end up hearing more news about that one. But can I mean, you she, imagine? There's no way she could have thought she would get away with it. Like, the car's registered, A. B, her Uber is registered. Yeah. Yeah. And the driver, like, number one. Yeah. Like, what the H? Like, are you that desperate for money? Like, that... they literally have GPS on because that's how knew. they find you. He yeah. knew she was fleeing. So, like, yeah. why would you pick her up? Like, get, I bet that charge gets car. dropped. I bet he doesn't get in trouble. I hope he doesn't. But at the same time, it's like, really? Like, come you can't on. can't do that. Yeah. Moral obligation to... Yeah. Yeah. So, interesting case. word. Oh, Florida. Um, this other one... Too amazing. <laughs> it's Florida for you. I found <laughs> this other one. Um, this is kind of crazy. This came out on BBC News. Melissa Caddick, missing fraud suspect's foot found an Australian beach. On an Australian beach. You see this I'm sorry? It says, Melissa Caddick, missing fraud suspect's foot found on an Australian beach. So get this. Australian police say they found the partial remains of a fraud suspect who vanished from her Sydney home four months ago. Businesswoman Melissa Caddick's disappearance has captivated public attention amid allegations she stole millions of dollars from her clients. Police found no trace of her until last week when campers spotted a shoe containing a decomposed foot on a beach just south of Sydney. DNA testing matched it to Mrs. Caddick. The financial advisor's time and cause of death would now have to be determined by a coroner. It remains a mystery as to when and how she came into the water. At this point, we can't rule out anything. We have kept an open mind. However, given the circumstances of her disappearance, we have considered the possibility that she may have taken her own life. The ocean drift modeling done by the police has shown it's possible that she could have entered the water near her Sydney home. Police are scouring a national park near her um, in the hope of finding more clues. Mrs. Caddick disappeared early on the 12th of November last year, a day after federal police raided her home in the wealthy Sydney suburb of Dover Heights. She was reported missing by her son and husband, who said they believed she had gone on an early morning run. All of her personal belongings had been left behind. Shortly after, allegations that she had committed financial fraud were reported by local media. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission alleged she had stolen at least $13 million in Ooh. investment funds from over 60 clients, including her own family and friends. Right? She had been living a very lavish lifestyle, including taking overseas holidays and buying expensive clothing and jewelry. Separate investigations by authorities probed her disappearance and alleged financial misconduct. Earlier this month, police reiterated their belief that she was still alive. But on Friday, after the discovery of partial remains, they think she's dead. Um, There have been no sightings of her near where the remains have been found. So here's my question. This This is definitely an interesting case. Like, can you imagine finding a foot washing up on the shore with a shoe? And it's happened before. There's been quite a few of them. I was going to say, do Seattle. you remember when that was happening in Washington State? Yep. It was yep. like 2013. Yeah. I think we um, talked about it on the podcast, didn't we? Probably, because it's one of the most fascinating stories, I think. I Like, it's one of the most fascinating stories, in my opinion, like ever. But also, it is part of the reason that I am afraid of, like, swimming in lakes. Yes. <laughs> 
Yes. And then the so second... So we, we did probably talk about it. The secondary issue that I considered in this case is this is, is a, that she's a not case, dead? She cut her own foot off. Uh-huh. And she's got, you know, $13 million out there. She could easily mm-hmm. start again somewhere. And mm-hmm. would you do that for $13 million? Would right? I cut my own foot off? Yeah. I mean, not you personally, but would right. a person cut their own foot off if they knew they were going to be prosecuted and they knew that they were going to be in big, big trouble and they knew that they could get away with it and start a new life? You know what I mean? I do. Um, that's not honestly, and, and And let's talk, let's talk about the first issue. So the first issue of a, dis, a disarticulated foot and disarticulated means separated from the rest of the full skeleton. So the ankle joint is a very unstable joint. Um, this is something that you may have heard about in Tiger Woods' recent car accident um, is that they basically had to rebuild his ankle joint. And it, the ankle joint is incredibly unstable. And when a person or a body goes into the water and fish and animals and just the water start to deteriorate the tissues around the body, the ankle, it is not uncommon for the ankle joint to detach from the other bones. Ooh. Yeah. So um, this happened, like I said, this happened around like 2013 in the state of Washington, and they found both bare feet and um, shoes with skeletonized feet in them. Yeah. Um, And they don't think any of those were like violent crimes. One of them was from um, a tsunami in Japan that had actually floated across the Pacific Ocean. Oh my God, that is so crazy. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Two. Yeah. So the second part of that is um, I absolutely – now, I have no idea the a case of this woman. This is the first time I'm hearing about it. I do think it is entirely within the realm of possibility that somebody would go to extreme measures like this to flee prosecution and make off with that amount of money. Yeah. I think it's entirely possible. And, you know, it doesn't say whether, you know, any of the money disappeared. All of her pos- possessions and belongings were at home, but that does not mean that she hadn't already created some kind of a framework in the mm-hmm. background to secure things and et cetera. I think it's entirely possible. I look forward to hearing more about this case because I think it is perplexing, but at the same time, very thought-invoking to think that right. somebody might potentially do that. And if they only find one foot ever... How yeah. do you pronounce someone dead necessarily with just one foot? I personally don't think, like if I'm an investigator, I'm scouring the area. Yeah. Because I'm not satisfied with, with one, one foot. foot. Me either. But get, they may know more information about the woman. Maybe they found a note. You know what I mean? Like there's no, yeah. we don't know the, we the don't whole know the story. Yeah. So I think both situations are entirely possible. I'm going to put it like 65, 35 that she did die by suicide. That's a lot of money that she took. Yep. Um, and it is entirely possible to live a completely normal life without yeah. a foot. So interesting. Very interesting yeah. stuff. I'm going to say 6535, um, the suicide route. Yeah. So interesting. Well, if I see any more details about this case, I'm going to kind of keep my eye on it all. Yeah, for sure. Let bring me know. that up. Um, sounds good. Okay. Main case for the day. We yeah. are kind of wrapping up our um, Black History Month sort of a tribute. And I had heard about this case quite a long time ago. I saw the movie back when I was in high school, I think, or mm-hmm. college, and was very disturbed by it and kind of had forgotten about it through the years until we started talking about some of these um, lesser known cases. And then I thought I really wanted to talk about this case. But this is the true story behind the movie Mississippi Burning. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the murder of James Cheney, Andrew Gold, a- excuse me, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner. So, we're going to go back to 1964. In the heart of the civil rights movement, there were three civil rights workers: two Jewish men and one black man. Black man, um, and they all disappear. These three men had been dedicated to assisting disenfranchised blacks gain voter rights, and they were organizing voter registration for blacks in Jessup County, Mississippi, um, as well as working with some organizations that assisted to help disenfranchised blacks in Mississippi in particular. And this is part of the Freedom Summer, right? Well, I'm going doing... to get into that oh. in just a second. Okay. So um, I'll get there. Sorry. I promise. Sorry. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, too, because I didn't really know a lot about the movement in general, and I gotcha. researched it a little bit. So as we mentioned in an earlier episode, around this period of time, blacks were either, were either unable to vote or they faced discrimination via poll taxes, literacy tests, and grandfather clauses. 
The civil rights movement and the workers involved with that actually went into southern cities and helped with demonstrations, sit-ins, boycotts, and voter registration to ensure that the maximum number of residents were registered to vote and allowed to vote. Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner were workers on a pan were workers, excuse me, on a campaign called Freedom Summer. And Freedom Summer, what is it? Um, it was also known as the Freedom Summer Project or the Mississippi Summer Project. And it was started in 1964, although they were actually working on it long before then, gathering hundreds of volunteers to canvas rural Mississippi and cities, helping to register as many black voters as possible. In addition to the voting registration drive, civil rights leaders also organized freedom schools, freedom houses, and community centers across Mississippi to give local black communities support, aid, housing, education, and any other resources that might be needed to right the wrongs that had been perpetuated against blacks in the Deep South, immediately following the Civil War and prior. Mm -hmm. um, this project was organized by something called the Council of Federated Organizations, which included four major, four major civil rights organizations, the NAACP, and in case people don't know what this stands for, I'm just gonna give the full name, but the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the SNCC, which is the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, CORE, which is the Congress of Racial, Racial Equity, God, I'm having a hard time speaking tonight, and the SCLC, which is the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Now, I believe these three young men worked with CORE primarily, which was the Congress of Racial Equity. Mm -hmm. Which is still around today, by the way. I think all of these organizations are. I, didn't, I wasn't sure if the SCLC was. Um, the majority of impetus, leadership, and money was said to have come from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and Freedom Summer itself was built upon a tremendous amount of work, organization, fundraising, and planning done in the years leading up to 1964, and they even included a mock freedom vote, where organizers played out and practiced the plan first to make sure that it was going to work and kind of give people a feel for what was gonna happen and some potential challenges that could arise from this. And the whole thing was created to help demonstrate the will of black Mississippians to vote, if not impeded by terror and intimidation, quote unquote. Because the whole, like, one of the main talking points for this was by white people was that they don't have any interest in voting. They don't right. want to, they, like, they're really better off just not voting like that that was really like a talking point that people pushed back then and yeah today that they would have no interest in voting if they were given the chance right and that's just simply not true so when this whole thing went down in the mid-1960s voter registration required 21 questions completed on a form so you had to be able to read to do that mm -hmm. and then you had to finish with satisfaction and approval of white registrators as well, one question based upon the registrar's interpretation of any one of 265 sections of the Mississippi State Constitution, which is completely bonkers. They could just pick yeah. any random thing. And then they basically had a subjective ruling against the black voters on the spot. And they were basically physically preventing or terrorizing any of these guys into not showing up to register. And then when they got there, their opinion on whether that person passed that question on the Mississippi state constitution was completely subjective. So even if they did pass it, the voter registration person could say, Oh, you didn't pass. Bye. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's part bonkers. of those literacy tests that, that were so prevalent back then. Exactly. Um, so to combat this, the Freedom Summer organizers were prepared to set up legitimate polling places and to help blacks register to vote understand the process and make changes politically through their constitutional right to vote. So as you can probably imagine, many whites in the South were not too enthused about this development and this plan. They wanted to keep things the way they were. They wanted to maintain the status quo and anybody that was gonna interrupt that was gonna be met with extreme violence and anyone trying to interrupt that flow was either gonna be killed or damaged in a, in a significant way. Mm -hmm. And residents in Mississippi deeply resented outsiders' attempts to change their society. That was like the big impetus behind them creating the KKK, from them creating these hate organizations to keep black people disenfranchised. And that's still true today for, I know for Mississippi and Alabama in terms of they just don't want outsiders coming in and telling them how to do their, to, no. to run their states. No. So 
They had an influx of volunteers during this time period who were coming into Mississippi and a lot of other deep south states trying to assist with this process. And these volunteers were routinely harassed, yelled at, and subjected to extreme violence, including drive-by shootings, Molotov cocktails being thrown at their cars and their residences. And then we had local officials who were often supported by tax dollars who were part of these hate organizations who were using arrests, arson, beatings, evictions, firings, murder, spying, etc., to thwart the project and prevent blacks from voting, mm-hmm. which is so crazy. Why would you go to all that trouble? I mean, it just is, it, it's extremely like the, the farthest end of the cliff that you could potentially jump off these people have done to prevent black people from voting at all costs. So here are some of the statistics that happened during the 10 week freedom summer. There were 80 workers beaten, 1,062 people got arrested, 37 churches were bombed or burned, four workers were killed, 30 black homes and businesses were bombed or burned, four people were, four people were critically wounded, and three were murdered for supporting Freedom Summer. Which is this is just Mississippi or is that all of the South? Just Mississippi okay. for this, this Freedom Summer, which mm-hmm. is so crazy to me. Mm-hmm. Now, let's jump back into the story here. It's June 21st, 1964. It's Freedom Summer in Mississippi. You've got these three gentlemen, Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, and James Cheney, who are working to help register black voters near Philadelphia, Mississippi. Don't get confused. I guess Philadelphia is a city in Mississippi as well. I didn't know that. It is. It's it's uh, eastern Mississippi. It's near the, it's not too far from the Alabama state line. It's, it's just outside of Meridian. The police in the small town were not trying to allow this, so the deputy sheriff, Cecil Price, arrests these three men in the town and takes them to the Neshoba County Jail. Mm-hmm. So at the time, I do not believe these three men were actually registering voters. I think that they were investigating a church bombing, and they were kind of mm-hmm. talking to people and reaching out and kind of talking to people within the community. They were not registering voters when they were taken in. But <clears throat> go ahead. I was just going to say, and James Cheney was the only one who was actually from Mississippi. Yes, and I'm going to get into that in just a second. Oh. I've got some information a little bit about these men as well. But Great. James, James Cheney was the driver, and mm-hmm. he was the only black man out of this group of three people. The, the other two, were, like I mentioned earlier, were Jewish, but he was the one that was charged with speeding, and the other two men were held for questioning. And this is so crazy to me because you don't normally get arrested for speeding. They say he was going 35 miles per hour over the speed limit, heading Mm -hmm. on his way out of town, which I don't believe for one second. But Sheriff Price claims that he released the three men on bail seven hours later and followed them out of town. And we all know what that means, right? Yep. So in the meantime, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman never showed up to Meridian, Mississippi, where they were due for further work the next day. And the representatives from the Congress of Racial Equity Corps start calling the new, the Neshoba County Jail asking about the missing men. So what's going on? We know they were over there in that town. Tell us what happened. Have you seen them? And it takes about two days for the FBI to get involved. And they end up sending about a dozen agents out to investigate. And unfortunately, um, It doesn't take long for someone to say they saw a burning core station wagon off the highway about 20 miles from Philadelphia, Mississippi. So they find the car, but they Mm -hmm. don't find the men. Um, Let's take a minute to take a step back and talk about these three men. You've got Michael Henry Schwerner. He was born in New York, November 6, 1939, into a Jewish family. He was raised in the Jewish faith and known to protect and befriend those who were picked on in his community as a young man. He attended Pelham Memorial High School in New York, and friends called him Mickey. His mother was a science teacher at a local high school, and his father was a businessman. Schwerner initially went to Michigan State University, intending to become a veterinarian, but transferred to Cornell, switching over to rural sociology as his major. He was part of the Alpha Epsilon Pi fraternity, and he entered Columbia University School of Social Work after undergraduate to get a master's. So it's clear to me that this man was interested in helping others, that he wanted to be involved in the communities that he was in, and he really had a vested interest in learning about people and relationships and how societies work, right? Mm Because he's into sociology, right? In the 60s, he became interested in civil rights. Um, The KKK targeted Schwerner and his wife after they took over the Meridian Mississippi Community Center for CORE, 
and he'd been going door to door to speak to local residents to kind of spread the word to kind of feel people out and to get to know the community a little bit and at that point that's when the kkk started following him and harassing him Mm-hmm. During his time there, he also organized a boycott of a local variety store until they started hiring blacks. Okay. So this man is on the foot on the ground, boots to ground, doing work in the community, putting his money where his mouth is and making things happen. He's not going to just mm-hmm. sit around and talk about it. He's going to go do something about it. That's the kind of man that you see in, in Schwerner. Okay. Yep. Then you've got James Cheney. He was born May 30th, 1943, in Meridian, Mississippi. So he was from there. He was the only mm-hmm. one of this group of three that was a local. He was the oldest child of Fanny Lee and Ben Cheney Sr. He went to a Catholic high school for the first nine years of his life and was a member of the local Catholic church. By the age of 15, he became interested in the civil rights movement and along with fellow students started wearing NAACP paper badges to mark their support for the organization. So he was interested in learning he was interested mm-hmm. in standing up for his rights, and he wanted to be involved in the civil rights movement from a pretty young age, it seems like. Um, this group of young men who wore the paper badges were subsequently suspended from school. Um, they did go to a segregated school, um, and they were suspended because of fears as to what the all-white school board would say for their support mm-hmm. of that, right? When he graduated from high school, James started working as a plasterer's apprentice in a trade union. But by about 1962, he was firmly in support of the civil rights movement and was in Mississippi joining the Congress of Racial Equity Corps in 1963. He went to rallies, events, and supported other core members as a sort of a liaison between members and different individuals within other kind of organizations in the civil rights movement. So he, again, Mm -hmm. just like Schwerner, was on the ground making things happen. And then the last of these three men is Andrew Goodman, He was the third member of this unfortunate trio. He was born November 23rd, 1943 in New York as well. He was from a little bit more of an affluent family. He was born on the Upper West Side. He was one of three boys belonging to parents Robert and Carolyn Goodman. He was also raised in the Jewish faith and with a family and a community that was said to have been deeply intellectual and dedicated to socially progressive activism and social justice. So he was on board with it, about living it, not just speaking it. Mm-hmm. He graduated from the Walden School, which I don't know if you know anything about it, but is very socially progressive as well. Um, oh, okay. And he was influenced in, in, by this school in his outlook in a major way. He then went on to the University of Wisconsin in, at Madison, and he was there for only one semester, I believe, before he dropped out with a bout of pneumonia. And then he went to Queens College in New York City, where he's said to have been friends with Paul Simon. Oh, right. Simon and Garfunkel or. Yeah, that's cool. He was interested in acting and planned to study drama and anthropology. But at the same time, he was getting involved in the civil rights movement. Like he felt like this was a meaningful thing for him. Mm-hmm. By 1964, he met and began volunteering with Michael Schwerner in the core organization and was excited to be part of the Summer of Freedom. So you got these three men, and they're doing their part. They're socially aware. They're standing up. They're taking action to end the deep-seated racial inequality in the South. It's June 21st, 1964 again. You've got these three men. They're in Mississippi investigating a recent burning of the Mount Zion Methodist Church. I don't mm-hmm. think that they were doing anything against the law. I think they were just kind of putting the feelers out and talking to people within the community to kind of gather information. This, this particular church had agreed to be a site for the educational programs for CORE to increase voter registration before it was unceremoniously destroyed, bombed, yeah. burned, which I don't think was uncommon. It sounds like there were quite a few of them that this was done to as well. Mm-hmm. But as these men were trying to return to Meridian, Mississippi, they were traveling in a station wagon clearly marked with the CORE logo, and they were arrested at that time by Cecil Price, the sheriff in that yeah. little town. Price claimed that they were driving 35 miles over the 30 mile per hour speed limit, which I highly doubt they were. And if they were, they were just trying to get the hell out of there because they were probably yeah. being chased by a bunch of KKK members. But in any case, yeah. <laughs> after approximately seven hours, Cecil claimed to have fined Cheney, the driver, $20. Keep in mind, he was the only black man in this trio and he was the only one charged with anything and the, only, and the other two were supposedly kept for questioning. Mm-hmm. But he claims to have released the three men without harm and followed them out of town, like I mentioned earlier. But Price actually did not do that. He sped up, 
caught the station wagon before it could reach the safety of Lauderdale County and ordered the three men out of the car. Okay. Yeah, because he would have, he, he said that he followed them to the state line to make sure they, quote, unquote, got out of the county safe. Right. When really he stops them before the county line because that's when he would lose his jurisdiction. Exactly. So he stops the station wagon around 10.30 p.m. on June 21st. He then drives the three men, he gets them into his own car, and mm-hmm. drives these men to a deserted area by Rock Cut Road. At this time, two additional cars filled with KKK members arrived and take the men. At that point, Price washes his hands of this, says he has nothing to do with it, and that's all he's going to say, okay? And these men were taken by the KKK immediately out to the edge of town in the middle of nowhere where they are promptly beaten, tortured, shot, and killed, and then buried. Autopsies showed that Goldman had red clay in his lungs and in his hands, which he had clasped into fists. This suggested that he had been buried alive next to Schwerner and Cheney. The KKK, after burying these innocent victims, melted into the shadows, and the FBI, with all 12 of their agents in that area, find the men eventually buried in an earthen dam. They got a tip from an anonymous source called Mr. X. And that's what helped them locate these three men. Because I, I don't know if they would have been able to find this area without the assistance. Yeah. But supposedly this investigation was given the name Milbur, um, M.I. Burn or My Burn mm-hmm. or short for, M.I. Burn. Yeah, short for Mississippi Burning by the FBI, kind of referencing the burning station wagon. And also the name of the movie that came out later, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. But the bodies of the three men were not found until August 4th, 1964. So they'd been two months, basically, Mm -hmm. or a month and a half um, buried. In the summer. Yeah. So they had decomposed quite significantly by then. Um, And they were only found with the assistance of an informant, like I mentioned, named Mr. X. The three civil rights workers were found in an earthen dam on a 253-acre farm just outside of Philadelphia, Mississippi. In total, 19 different suspects were indicted by the U.S. Department of Justice, but they were not indicted for murder. They were indicted for a violation of civil rights, which is quite Mm -hmm. surprising to me that at no point these men involved were, were tried for murder. Because that's a state charge. Right? October 27, 1967, Seven of the 19 men were convicted in a federal trial and given sentences of three to 10 years, Mm -hmm. which absolutely blows my mind. Nine of the 19 men were acquitted and a jury deadlocked on three of them. So the, the last three didn't get any punishment at all. The case slowly faded until, excuse me, until 2002 when an investigation reported new evidence uncovered and new witnesses. They pressured Mississippi to reopen the case at that point. And from what I understand, it was a reporter for a local paper and a high school yes. teacher from Illinois and his students researching yep. this. It was, it was Jerry Mitchell who started as a reporter. He's now a very prolific, um, he's still a reporter, but he's a prolific author and he's written a book about this, which we'll talk about at the end. It's incredible. Yeah, so I just can you imagine just being a high school teacher and you're like, you know what, yeah. I'm just going to do this little project, and you un- you suddenly uncover this major evidence on this case, and yeah. meanwhile, Mr. X's identity had been hidden for nearly 40 years, and he was revealed to have been Maynard King, who was a highway patrolman at the time of the killings, and he revealed the location of the three dead bodies. Okay, so. It doesn't say necessarily whether he was involved in this or not, but mm-hmm. you got to wonder if he was, because how else would you know the location of these bodies unless he heard somebody talking about it? Yeah, it's entirely possible that there was a lot of talk and bragging at the police station because this is not a thing that people got turned in for in 1964. No, but um, in 2005, Edgar Ray Killen was charged. He was the only one and convicted of three counts of manslaughter for his part, and he received a 60-year prison sentence. He died in jail January 11, 2018. He was the outspoken white supremacist leader of this group, and they called him the preacher. And I guess he'd been out talking about it, and he was the only one that they could prosecute on this, which Mm -hmm. is absolutely amazing. 
um, just mind-blowing that no one could be prosecuted for this, but not surprising given the climate of the time and the fact that many of the members of the police departments and law enforcement were involved with the KKK, right? Yep. These events all took place in Meridian in 1964 and were in, and inspired the movie Mississippi Burning, starring Gene Hackman and William, William Defoe. Um, is it Willem? Willem? Willem Defoe. Um, this was released December 2nd, 1988 to mixed reviews. So although many people thought it would tell a very important story, um, magazines called the movie just another Mississippi whitewash. Yikes. Others mm. called it a cinematic lynching of the truth. They said it sped down the complicated, painful path of the civil rights movement in search of a good thriller, and others called the film morally repugnant. Um, the film as a whole was controversial because it fictionalized many of the events that took place and took artistic um, license, eventually turning the event into a work of fiction rather than truth. And yeah. so many people felt that it was focused entirely too much on the white characters. The NAACP said it fictionalized, said, sorry, it fictionalized, okay, it's fictionalized and reeks with dishonesty, deception, and fraud, portraying blacks as cowed, submissive, and blank-faced. Mm. Additionally, families of the boys were disturbed by the movie. They felt that the FBI agents were the ones that got all the credits, and they were the ones that were hero. They were considered heroes when the actual heroes were downplayed. Mm -hmm. That it was also a distorted reality of 1964, basically Rambo meets the Klan, Filmmakers say it was fictionalized, but represented the heart of the truth, and that was the most important part. So let's talk a little bit about the aftermath. Cheney's family had to leave Mississippi because of death threats, which, again, just horrifying. Um, they ended up moving to New York City with the help of the other two boys' families or the other two men's families. Um, Goodman and Schwerner's families assisted Cheney's family to get to New York James Cheney's younger brother eventually joined the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army. Again, not surprising with given, you know, what happened to him. Mm -hmm. And after an incident where two white men were killed in Florida, it's not clear whether he actually participated in that or not, but he was convicted of murder in Florida and served 13 years before he got parole. Wow. When, he, when he got out, he founded the James Earl Cheney Foundation in his brother's honor and worked with that and then also worked for Attorney General Ramsey Clark since 1985. Clark, I guess, was the guy who helped get him paroled. In 1966, Andrew Goodman's parents started the Andrew Goodman Foundation to carry on the spirit and purpose of their son's life. The family has run it ever since, and it is still closely associated with civil rights movement and still works with the Freedom Summer. Um, Schwerner's hmm. family... And remember, Andrew Goodman was the one from a wealthier family, but yep. Sch Schwerner received the Presidential Medal of Honor in 2014, and a street was named after him in his honor, but there was no foundation, I believe, started in his name. So that's kind of the aftermath of what happened with this, and I remember watching this movie way back when. I don't think it was part of a school thing. I think I just watched it because I was interested in it, um, and it was mm -hmm. hyped up quite a bit back then. Um, but I was uh, disappointed by the film as well. I didn't feel like it was... I felt like it was really like about the FBI agents and not about the civil rights workers. Yeah. And I get that one confused with the other one, Ghosts of Mississippi, which that's the one that has Alec Baldwin in it, I think. I think so too. Um, but they are, I mean, they're both Hollywood renditions of, they're both early 90s Hollywood renditions of the civil rights movement, right? So like they're not really addressing the sticky stuff you yeah. know what I mean yeah like we're, we're still kind of afraid to talk about that kind of stuff so yeah it's it's it is it, they both are whitewashed but oh yeah there there are and I don't know if you went and looked this up after we talked but it, there is this, this there's this online archive called the vault with the FBI and it's freely accessible and freely searchable and you can search for any of their documents that have been um, released as part of FOIA Freedom of Information Act, and they have a trove of MI burn documents. And the thing is, they're scanned. They're mostly like typewritten from like 1965 ish. Right. You know, so it's kind of hard to read a lot of them, but there's, I mean, there's so much information there of like firsthand primary source information. But right. to go back to the reporter who kind of uncovers all of this, Jerry Mitchell, he writes currently for the Clarion Ledger. 
he wrote this book that came out last year. It's called The Race Against Time. And he covers cases that he worked to get these cases prosecuted 40 years after the fact. And this was one of them. He was responsible for Edgar Ray Killen getting um, convicted. He was responsible for Byron Byron D. LeBeckwith getting convicted of the murder of Megger Evers. And he goes and gets, he somehow gets these guys to just talk to him. He goes, he goes up to their houses, these white supremacist houses, these guys that are still probably actively white supremacists, you know, back when they were alive, yeah. but most of them have since passed away. Yeah. But even in the nineties and two thousands, you know, actively white supremacists, actively dangerous to go up and talk to them. He goes yeah. up and talks to them and sits in their, in their, in their houses and gets them to admit to killing these men. I yeah. mean, it's, I think that's it's what happened here. He got thing. a recording of yeah. Cullen saying that he yeah. did it and th- used that as evidence in the court of law, which is just bonkers to me that these white supremacists would be that I, dumb. That they I would don't be like, know oh, how hey, he here does you it. Go. And there is no statute of limitations on this. Do they not understand that? Right. Or like, it just is so crazy to me that they would he's, he's, basically I, I confess. Know, I actually know a reporter who knows him. And I asked her, and I'm like, how does he get these guys to just talk about this? And she was like, he's just, he's that good. Like, he's folksy. Like, you get to know him. You sit down with him. You feel like you've known him a million years. And you end up just like, admitting everything to him like he's just really really good at getting people to admit to stuff yeah but i cannot i literally i read that book in a day i like i could not put it down he talks about he's an exceptional writer very good yeah he talks about megger evers he talks about the freedom summer the three these three men with the mississippi birdie he talks about the um the birmingham the 16th street baptist church bombing and there's one more that i can't remember off the top oh he talks about vernon damer i think who was murdered in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. But um, he was also another man who was, he was a black man who was protecting his family um, and trying to get people to register to vote. And, and I cannot recommend a book more than that. Than Jerry Mitchell's race against time. Like it's unbelievably phenomenal. Like it's just, we're going to drop that into the show notes too, in case you guys have some interest in checking yeah. those out. Cause they're just, it's good stuff. Yeah. It's incredible. And, and, you know, it's one of those things, and this is, it's common, it was very common in Mississippi, it was very common in Alabama, that you couldn't allow black people to vote, because once you have a government that actually represents the people they're governing, it doesn't always go great for the people who used to be in power, and that was very much (laughs) the Klan, I mean, that was very much what they did, I mean, back in the 60s and 70s, I mean, the governor of Mississippi was a member of the Klan, I'm pretty sure, I don't want to, like, I'm pretty sure uh, Ross Barnett. Um, he was the one who said that Ole Miss was going to be segregated forever. Um, then there was George Wallace who had the segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever at University of Alabama. Um, I mean, this was a time when it was when people were fighting for change, and then there you had people actively, aggressively, violently fighting against change. We had that good old boys club, the yeah. you know, good old Southern white men club who, you know, they were interested and they felt that they had strength in numbers to keep that together. Yeah. And, packed. and this was 70 years ago. This was not something that happened back in the Civil War. This was, my parents were alive for this. You know what I mean? And that's what's so like hard to see that we're kind of like, we're, the way history has a tendency to repeat itself is, you want you want to hope that this is something that isn't cyclical you know what i mean but like we're so like we're not even far enough away to remove from it to forget about it and we're doing it again you know what i mean like it's just it's hard but this is that's one of those cases and there was another i mean there's another there's cases all over alabama too of, of of volunteers who came to uh, work with the civil rights movement, but both white and non-white volunteers who came mm-hmm. from other places to work in the civil rights movement and were murdered. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was incredibly dangerous, A, to be black in America, B, to be black in the South, but C, to, to, to try and work for change. I mean, it was just... And I think it just emphasizes as well that, you know, the, even the, the Jewish men that came in to help with it, they were targeted too. Like no mm-hmm. one, no one was safe just because you had a white colored skin. If you chose mm-hmm. to support this movement, you could be the victim of terrorist violence. Period. Absolutely, and, anyone and involved. The, and the Klan was primarily a racist group, but they also 
were prejudiced against Jews. They were prejudiced against Catholics. Basically, anybody that wasn't white Protestant. So anybody that supported the civil rights movement, anybody that was a different religion other than Protestant, they were against you. They were violent primarily towards towards blacks. But I mean, if you if you participated, if you supported the civil rights movement, you had a target on your back too. And it's just it's a terrifying I mean, it's a terror case. group. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you've got these these three men who are just, and they weren't even registering voters at the time. They were yeah. just talking to people in the community. Yep. I mean, just incredible. And then they buried the one guy alive. Like, uh, just so sad. So incredibly mm-hmm. sad. Um, and these men had families and people that loved them and supported them and cared for them. And they were doing things for their community. They were making yeah. things happen. And they, they were young. They were yeah, so young. Yeah. So it's just, it's incredibly sad. And you think about, you know, what could these men have done had they not had their lives snuffed out mm-hmm. at such a young age? Like the, there's every indication that the three of them could have done big things for the civil rights movement. Yeah. So. And I believe, did you talk, did you say that they renamed the freeway in uh, Phil, uh, Meridian to Philadelphia, the James B. Cheney Freeway? I didn't say that. I, I know that there were um, quite a few little awards and, and mm-hmm. tributes um, given to these men. I think more for Cheney and Goodman than for mm-hmm. Schwerner, but I think that there have been some pretty awesome tributes to these men from the last you know couple of decades through history as people start to recognize and review some of the things that these men did for the civil rights movement. I think this time in history has been very interesting because it's sort of allowing a lot of people to remember these things again, to dig them back up, to look at what happened back then and to really analyze it and appreciate and reflect. Yeah. Some of the changes that were made and and some of the contributions that individual men and women made towards Mm -hmm. the civil rights movement. And I hope that's, what we're able to do by talking about some of these cases as well is to remind people that history is not necessarily what they tell us in the books that we get in school. Right. Because that is very kind of one-sided and I don't want to sound like I'm this little woke girl from, you know, podunk Washington state, but, but that's um, just an objective truth. I mean, yeah, there is so much missing from the history books. Just like we talked about with our last episode, Claudette Colvin, I mean, we and you you would have never known about no, her because she not. wasn't the one that that started the whole thing. I mean, she she, she was, was one of the first but she wasn't the it. face of it, right? Yeah, but they didn't want her to be the face of it, and that's something I grew up an hour and a half from Montgomery, and I didn't learn learn that, you know. And I drive by, I I drive by Philadelphia, Mississippi, and Meridian, Mississippi, all the time, and I see the James Cheney memorial highway sign all the time i mean how many times do people pass that and just don't even think about what that represents you know well i think that people need to be encouraged to seek things out to seek knowledge and i think that was part of my journey growing up as well i knew that i came from a very a community that was not racially diverse and so Mm -hmm. when i got to college i sought it out i wanted to learn about it i had a miss i had a history major but i also had an ethnic studies double major because Mm -hmm. i wanted to learn about the side of history that they weren't telling us about that they didn't want us to know about the minorities, the women, the people in the lower socioeconomic brackets that don't fill history books, that mm-hmm. isn't always pleasant to hear about, that suffered discrimination and terrible, terrible things throughout history by the people that were in charge. I wanted to learn about all of that and not just the white males that they talk about in history books. And right, and well, and that's that's similar to what you were talking about with Schwerner and Goodman, right? Like they they came from New York City, that which has a large Jewish population. They right. didn't probably feel left out. One was it Goodman? You said that was pretty pretty affluent. Yes. Mm-hmm. So they both understood, and they just they wanted to seek something outside of their bubble. Right. I mean, that's what that is. Like that's. I mean, that's the exact same thing that that is. Is is no understanding that what you're seeing every single day is not all there is. There's more to it, and there's other people's stories that you get to learn. Yeah, and I would just encourage people in general, like, don't necessarily always listen to what one source tells you. Mm-hmm. Seek out multiple sources, 
and multiple different means by which to learn. Talk to people, research yourself, look online, go to the library, go try to find these things out and discover them yourself because it's much easier to find these things now than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Absolutely. And you're going to find a much more well-rounded of what was actually happening because I guarantee you, white men did not rule the world and contribute everything to the culture in the world. There were women, there were minorities, there were Asians, there were blacks, there were Hispanics. They were doing just as many things as white men. So mm -hmm. find out for yourself, discover all these cool things that were happening. And I hope that we can talk more about some of the contributions that these minorities were making as well. Absolutely. Seek the objective truth. Absolutely. That's what I would say. Um, anything else you want to add before we wrap it up for the week? I don't. I don't have anything. So we will drop everything into the show notes that we used tonight for research and as well as the books that Darcy talked about if anybody wants to um, take a read of those very, very interesting I'm still things. trying to get this book club started. Right? I think all of those are available <laughs> on Amazon now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So until that... Please rate, review, and subscribe, and join us again when we talk more about weird and wacky and wild and non-traditional cases. Darcy, what's our Instagram? Yeah, we are at the BFD Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram, so we'll post everything there. We'll post some pics on Instagram, and we'll post resources and all that good stuff on Twitter. Um, so yeah, you can find us there. There's all, all things there, and then Sarah's at Cooper's with a Z, human, if you want to find more updates on the house, which she's still posting. Yeah. Um, and we'll house post some update. pictures of these gentlemen as well. Yeah. Cause although I had heard the story, I hadn't heard, I hadn't seen pictures of them. And I think it's really, really? important to put names with faces for yeah. things like this, but um, you can always shoot us an email as well. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. We love questions, comments, suggestions, anything you want to add suggestions for future shows. We're happy to kind of accommodate that. Um, and please join us again next week. I already said that. <laughs> Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real. And always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.